So what is a Christian? What is a Christian? Now, of course that question will, will, will be in the heart and the mind of Maya, won't it, as she grows up. She's got Christian parents, after all. Uh, she'll be asking questions of them all the time. And we pray one day she will make up her own mind. And she will decide to be a Christian or not. And we have prayed today and committed as a church to pray that she will decide to become a Christian. But if you're here to support Lau and Anna um, on this special day, or maybe you've just come along here for the first time uh, this week, can I say firstly, you're very, very welcome. I hope you've been made to feel welcome. And I hope that you'll be made to feel welcome afterwards. We've got some nice cakes and all that kind of stuff as well. But I want to ask you that question. What would be your answer? What is a Christian? See, you may actually consider yourself a Christian just by virtue of being a citizen of this great country of ours, Great Britain. You know, after all, Great Britain has for a long time stood very proud in the fact that it has a Christian heritage. Much of the the legal system, um, much of uh, the political system is based and shaped on Christian values, on Christian morality. But is that it? Is that what defines your understanding of Christianity? Just heritage. Now perhaps you're here and you're, you're doing a favour for Lau and Anna just coming along and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. That's okay. But how do you understand Christians? How do you view them? What's the way that you look at them? Do you see them as the kind of those slightly judgmental folk that look down their noses at you? Perhaps you see them as the do-gooders of society. They help old ladies across the road and so on. Perhaps you see them as kind of, in a moral sense, slightly hypocritical. They say one thing and do the other thing. They, they take all the fun out of Christmas and they take all the eggs out of Easter. Yeah? Sometimes the, the thing that's lambasted towards Christians. See, you may have made a moral judgment about Christians. They've double standards. And, and, you know, they lack fun. Now, you may come from another angle. You know, the more intellectual angle. You, you kind of you've looked at Christians, you've looked at the Christian faith, and you said, look, I've weighed up all the evidence for Christianity. I've looked at what they believe in, their worldview. And to be honest, there's too many blind leaps of faith. That's what you may say. Rather, what you're thinking is, I've put my faith, and you all have a faith to some degree. You've, you've put your faith perhaps in an evidence-based, rational, scientific, logic method of thinking. Now what's your presupposition there? I want to ask you, have you really examined the Christian faith and Christians? Have you examined the fact that there are so many leading scientists around the world within history and in Oxbridge and many other universities today who are Christians? Who don't see that as conflicting views? Have you examined the true identity of, and the morality and the ethics of a Christian and seen where the, their worldview is formed? And have you observed that? And the attitude in which it's lived out, really? Or have you just kind of dismissed the Christian faith because of, you know, you've seen Doc Cotton and EastEnders? And that's what a lot of people do, don't they? Or some equally awful stereotypes on TV. Or the worst case scenario that you see on the tabloid newspaper. Is that why you've dismissed the Christian faith? See, I, I do wonder if you're here 
have you come with a modicum of intrigue? Are you willing to at least give your mind and your heart a little go and say, is this worth investigating? And by, by virtue of the fact that you're here, you know, you're looking at Lau and Anna or us corporately, and you're, you may be saying, they've not put me off the Christian faith. They seem okay. <laughs> I use that word generously. <laughs> so you're here, and I'm, I'm going to throw the question back to you. What is a Christian in your heart and mind today? Now, I want you to do something. I want you to step outside the politically correct postmodern Great Britain that we, which we live in and just be rude for a second, okay? Um, follow with me in a kind of conversation. Your Christian friend, maybe Al, Anna and Lau, ask you this question. They say, what do you think a Christian is? Now, take your political correctness, correctness away and I want you to reply in all honesty. Not out loud, by the way. That's a rhetorical. Um, Either you're going to say to them something like this, you seem okay, but I think you are intellectually deluded. That's one honest answer that you may be thinking right now of Christians. Or you could say, I like you, not bad for going out for a cappuccino, but you are a judgmental and moral hypocrite. Is that the honest answer that you would say to them if you take away your Britishness? I'm kind of asking you today to do another thing. I want you to be honest with yourself and a little bit more, perhaps a little bit more polite to your Christian friends as well, and say something like this. You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what a Christian is. But I'd like to know a little bit more. And I'm willing to be humble enough to take away all the presuppositions of, that I've known in my previous life and knowledge. And I want to see... The truth. See, this, this afternoon, as humbly and as lovingly as possible, I'm going to try to proverbially back you into a corner. And I will show you what a Christian really is. And I will hopefully show you the reality. I'm not going to gloss over the difficult bits, as you will see at the end. And I want to do this for you because... I want you to say with all integrity in your heart and mind, when someone says, what is a Christian? I want you to be able to give the answer. And I want you to be able to give your response to that answer too. So to our passage. Now, that was a bit of an introduction, but let's go to our passage. Let's dive in. Um, Normally I'd run through the passage and I'd give all sorts of details about what's going on. There's lots there. I can't go through it all. We haven't got time. But I'm going to do a bit of that, but I'm also going to show you the realities to answer that question for us. What is a Christian? Now, what do you have in your hands? You have opened the book of Acts. It's an historical account um, in the New Testament. And it's written in about AD 70, plus or minus about two years, historical records show us. And it's, it's a kind of a, it's a two-part story. The first part is Luke's Gospel, just two books back in the New Testament. And Luke there records Jesus walking around on this earth, his work, his sayings, his miracles, and so on, his um, interaction with the disciples. And Acts then, as the second part of the story, records Jesus' work in and through now his apostles, formerly known as disciples. Jesus is now in heaven. He is resurrected. And he empowers his apostles to do miraculous things. 
but most importantly to preach and to teach a message, a good news for salvation, to be with God for eternity. Now think historical accuracy for a moment if you can. Now I've just said two incredibly bold things, haven't I? Quite nonchalantly. I've just told you about Jesus' life and his work. But secondly, I mentioned his resurrection, didn't I? And those things are hard to believe, aren't they? You can either decide to take what is in your hands as a historical accurate record, or you can just say it's folklore. But one of the interesting things, one of the most thing, things that compelled me most about the Christian faith is, is what you are holding is accurate, is an historical account that can be trusted. Because why? Because the volume of manuscripts that attest to what is being um, described here, even documents from those who hated Jesus, who hated the disciples, attest to the historicity of what is going on here. If this was made up, if what you have in your hands is the biggest conspiracy known to man ever, there would be volumes, there would be documents in history to say, ah, oh, that's a load of rubbish. Can you find any? No. They're just not around in ancient history. And don't believe me. Go to the British Museum. Go to the British Library. Ask a historian. And pretty much any historian worth, you know, worth his, kind of his degree and his PhD would say, absolutely, this is historical and is accurate. Now, that doesn't mean every historian is a Christian, but pretty much any historian will not deny the historicity of what you're holding in your hands here and what you're reading. These things happened. Miracles. Resurrection. They happened. They seemed to happen. Tacitus, Josephus, Jewish and Roman historians, they didn't like the fact that Jesus had been resurrected, but they could not deny it in their historical accounts. It seemed to happen. And many, many hundreds and thousands of people viewed that happening. What happened in this story, though? Let me introduce you to the character story. There are two groups. Have a look down if you can. You see the first group, the, the word there is the Sanhedrin. That's basically the Jewish ruling council that met in Jerusalem. Very intimidating bunch of people, very influential, very powerful. They were the group that handed Jesus over to be crucified. That's the context of which you must uh, understand who they are. But now, they're outraged, aren't they? With this other group of people. And here we get introduced to the second group. They're the apostles. You see them? They've got absolutely hardly any influence, any power in the world. No position of authority. But what are they doing? They are speaking and they are healing in the name of Jesus or the power of Jesus. Now these two groups have met before. It wasn't a very pretty um, interaction. If you go back to chapter 4 verse 18. Peter and John have met the Sanhedrin. They've been told not to speak in the, in the name of Jesus. Or do anything in the name of Jesus. Again. The, what did Peter and John say? Chapter 4 verse 19. They say judge for yourselves. This is to the Sanhedrin. Powerful bunch of people. Judge for yourselves whether it is right. In God's sake, sight to obey you. Rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard in Jesus. So the Sanhedrin, this very powerful bunch, instruct a very meagre, low bunch of men to stop speaking or doing anything in the name of Jesus. 
But what we see at the beginning of the passage is not an obedience to the Sanhedrin, but rather an obedience to God. As you see all these kind of performing of miracles and wonders, cast your eyes down to verse 12, you see, uh, you know, with all the threats to their safety and their freedom, the apostles continue to heal. They perform many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. But look what happens. Cast your eyes down to verse 17. Then the high priests were getting right to the top here. And his associates, who are the members of the party of the Sadducees, that's the political wing of the Sanhedrin, who were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and they put them in a public jail. So the threat had been there. And now the apostles are thrown in jail. And they knew that that was a possibility. But they continued to do what they, they felt they needed to. That is, continue to preach and heal in the name of Jesus. But then you get to verse 19, and it's a big but, isn't it? You see that? At the beginning of verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. That's a bit of background. That's what's happening at the beginning of the story. Now, just to help us think about that initial question, what is a Christian? First point I want to mention, Christians have been delivered to teach the good news. Now, I know we're reading about a very unique set of people here. We're reading about the apostles. Unique time, unique, unique set of people. But the, the apostles are not only unique, they're also representative. Because all Christians are apostles to some degree. Apostles, literally in the Greek, means sent ones. They're all, all Christians are sent by God to do something. So what we see here in this little picture of history, recorded in Acts here, is exactly what every Christian is in some way. Note a few things before we uh, come to see why that is so. Firstly, look at verse 17. Why are they in prison? They're in prison because there is a bunch of very powerful men who are becoming very jealous of a, very, a, a group of men who have very little power. The Sanhedrin, they're jealous. They're fueled from uh, you know, all their anger towards these men. The apostles ignored their first instruction. Secondly, note, they're not only um, in prison because of jealousy, they're deliver, delivered by grace. Have a look at that. The apostles, they've infringed the Sanhedrin, their, their legal authority. But God delivers them. They are delivered through a work of a messenger or an angel. Now, God doesn't have to do this. Those men, those apostles, were rightly in jail. They had broken the law. They were in contempt of court, if you like. But God has purposed them to be delivered from that jail and from their imprisonment. Thirdly, a little interesting point here, is they were delivered for a purpose. Do you see what the purpose was? To teach this message. Verse 20, that's the purpose. To teach the full message of what? A new life. Did you notice that? So what is a Christian? What can we learn from these few verses of what, you know, what the apostles are and what they've done? See, the story is, of, is of, of a physical imprisonment, isn't it, in a jail. But in a sense, it mirrors a spiritual imprisonment that every Christian here has known and is now liberated from. And that sounds really dramatic, doesn't it? But Christians know and delight in the fact that we have been delivered by a gracious and an undeserved work of God. Simply Christians have humbly recognised that one day we will face a justice from God and we will deserve it. 
Because of all of our ignoring of God, all our turning our back on God. Every day I do it in my life, and I'm sure you do too. The Bible calls that rebellion. It's simply, in the Greek, it's kind of turning my back on him. The Bible calls that word sin. And it's a bit of a Bible word, but essentially it's a turning my back on God. Saying, I don't want to know you. I don't want to put my trust in you. I'll just ignore you. Now that can be shown in a number of ways. It can be in a kind of Jimmy Savile-esque, very rebellious way. Or it could be in a very British, middle-class, cool indifference. I just don't want to have any reference to God, thank you very much. I'll live my life my own way. Christians have recognised that they are metaphorically, if you like, imprisoned in a life that fails to recognise who God is. And it's simply, I've turned my back on him. And that turning my back leads to one thing, an eternal justice. An imprisonment for eternity, if you like, in that justice of God. We can't shake our fists at God, that is totally fair. Just like it was totally fair for the apostles to be imprisoned here. But a Christian is someone like the apostles who has been delivered. And notice it is God who does the delivering. The apostles don't break out in some kind of, you know, getting out of prison way. He sends someone to free them from the justice that they deserve. It is a gift of grace. And that is exactly what God in his love has done for me. And he's done for you too. See, we all deserve justice. We've all failed God. I fail my own standards, never mind God's standards. I have fallen below what he requires of me. But we can be delivered, as the apostles were here, from that justice that we deserve. Because God sent himself, his son, to deliver us. How does that happen? Well, when Jesus came to live on this earth, he lived a perfect life that we could not. Even when he was um, up for trial, just about to be crucified, no one, not even his worst enemies, could find anything that he'd ever done wrong, said wrong, nothing. They could pin nothing on him. He lived a perfect life. And then he was crucified on a cross. Why? Well, basically so that I don't have to be. And so that you don't have to be. He decided he would love, in his love, take the justice that my sin deserves before God. And simply, I describe it to my boys as this, it's simply a swap. We can be delivered from the justice that God deserves. And that can be placed on Jesus on the cross. My sin on Jesus on the cross. But that's only one side of the picture. Because that perfect life that Jesus lived can be counted as mine. So when I stand before God at the end of my life, all he will see is the perfect life that Jesus has lived. It is a swap. And it is that delivering truth that Christians are defined by, are dependent on, and are joyful in. And that is why when delivered, the apostles continue to proclaim the good news, that the good news which I've just explained to you of that deliverance by grace. They, they can't help telling people about this great news. Because it brings new life, eternal life. 
Life now as a Christian has wonderful purpose, wonderful contentment, beyond anything that you could ever imagine, whether in material things or relationship, whatever it may be, the Christian life now trumps it all. But it gets better because life eternal, only knowing the love of God for eternity, well, that is mind-blowingly good. So what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who has been delivered by the grace and love of God in him sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. And as a result, we cannot help speak about that good news. Now this message that Christians are delivered to proclaim may result in... We may not know any present prosperity. That's, there's no promises of that in, in the Bible. We, there's no suffering-free life promised. None of that in the Bible either. But the future glory awaiting all Christians outweighs anything that life can bring right now. The apostles knew this and they were obedient. Cast your eyes down to verse 25 if you can. Follow the story on. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. So what happens again? They, they get hold of the apostles and they haul them in front of the Sanhedrin. You can imagine the frustration at this point. Verse 28, cast your eyes down. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. That's the Sanhedrin. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Brackets, they were. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than man. You see, the second point, very quickly. What, if you want to know what a Christian is, it is this. Christians obey God rather than anything else, rather than man, rather than anything. The the apostles were in contempt of court. They're laying down principles of kind of civil disobedience and even ecclesiastical disobedience at this point. That's basically church and state disobeying them in order to obey God. Now, Christians are called to be good citizens. Don't get me wrong here. Romans 13, another passage in the Bible says, you're to obey the laws of the land and, and so on. We're not to kind of like think, oh yeah, I'll obey God, 80 miles an hour, thank you very much, or anything like that. No, that's not the case. But if the government abuses their authority and encourages activities and policies that encourage, well, that God would not approve of, then that is the point that Christians must not obey government but rather God. Now, let me give an example. If it were illegal for me to do this right now, to preach the gospel, as it is illegal in many countries in the Middle East and in the Far East, what would I do? I'd be stood here preaching. Now, that's rather alien to us because we have a a wonderfully free and democratic uh, kind of country. But many Christians around the world meet in defiance of their government under whose authority they live. You see, the apostles are saying, we must obey God. That's what defines a Christian. We must obey God. Why, though? The, The apostles give us three very quick reasons in verse 30 to 32 here. Let me show you. Firstly, because God raised Jesus from the dead. In verse 30, cast your eyes down, there's these little contrasts which amaze our acts the whole time. You see, um, God raised him, sorry, you killed him, God raised him. You rejected Jesus, but God vindicated him. You see, Christians obey God. I obey God because God has raised Jesus to new life. He demonstrates his mastery over life itself. Jesus was resurrected. We obey God, Christians obey God, because he has demonstrated a power over life itself. Can you imagine, just bear with me, 
if you imagine you had a heart disease, okay? And you went to the doctor and he offered you a cure. He had the power and the wisdom to transform your life. Would you listen to every instruction he gave you? Or would you ignore him? You know, ignore his diagnosis, not take the medication that he gives you. Would you disobey your doctor? I hope you'd say no to that. Because he has the power to save you. And that's what he's saying here. God has demonstrated his power to raise us to new life. I have to ask you very graciously, have you got the solution to death? Have you worked it out yet? If you haven't, God has. God who raised Jesus, that's the first evidence. And secondly, we must obey God because God is um, who exalted Jesus. You see that in verse 31, cast your eyes down there. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might give... um, Sorry, repentance and the forgiveness of sins to Israel. The risen Jesus is exalted and enthroned. So how are we to serve that risen and enthroned king? Like any king, you serve them through submission and obedience. If Christ is exalted, then we're to submit Uh, to his authority and to obey his commands. Aristotle, the great philosopher, once said, wicked men obey from fear, good men from love. See, we obey, Christians obey King Jesus because he has given us new life, eternal life, bought with his own blood. What kind of love is that? He gave his life for us. And Christians, we respond to that in love and obedience. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was a local preacher, lived up in Nightingale Lane towards Clapham there. Um, He was a founder of a number of uh, kind of um, orphanages and so on in in the local area. He was once in Stockwell in an orphanage and a boy was washing his hands in a large bowl. And Spurgeon turned to the boy and he said, why do your hands not drown? And the boy turned to him and he said, "Um, he said, because my head is safe. And Christians, you see, we are eternally safe because our head is safe. Our king is safe. See, no one can dethrone the king of kings, the exalted Christ. That brings huge confidence to Christians. For we know that no one can ever stop Jesus forgiving our sin. As shown in verse 31. Our head is secure. And how do Christians respond to that? Through obedience. It's not just a one-way thing though. We don't just obey a, a kind of an unresponsive king. God is, you know, Christ is not just a dismissive kind of sitting on his throne, you get on with it, thank you very much, you obey me. No, God delights in us obeying him. As a father does his children. In response, God longs to do us good. That is not promised wealth, promised health or anything. He promises us good. That is essentially to make us more like him. So lastly, Christians obey God. God who raised Jesus, God who exalted Jesus, and God who gave us his spirit. We see that in verse 32. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given us to obey him. God himself is in the hearts of Christians to testify to Christ, to guide us in the ways of Christ, and to urge us to be obedient to Christ. Thomas Kempis, a 14th century theologian and philosopher, once said, 
Instant obedience is the only kind of obedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Whoever strives to withdraw from obedience withdraws from grace, he says. Let me just summarise those little things there. A Christian is someone who knows and has put their trust in God who has raised Jesus. That is, the God who offers power over life and death itself. A Christian is someone who's put their trust in God who has exalted Jesus. The exalted Jesus who can only forgive our sin. And a Christian is someone who put their trust in, in God who has given us his spirit. That is the one who guides us and assures us. And all that makes the Christian joyful, content in obedience to God. Above everyone and everything else. Even if our hearts and our minds are saying, do that, that feels right, go for that. A Christian will long to obey God in that thing. And that is hard sometimes. But every Christian here will testify to the fact that God, if you obey him, he shows you the best way, the most fulfilling way, the most fun way, the most satisfying way of life. And if you don't believe me, and I guess you won't, ask a Christian beside you. What is a Christian? Lastly, and very quickly, a Christian, I said I wouldn't gloss over the reality, a Christian will expect persecution. You see the clear and present danger in verse 33. When they heard this, that's the Sanhedrin, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But they, were rescu- but they are rescued by the wise and um, very measured Pharisee Gamaliel. And he refers to the Sanhedrin, that kind of historical precedent, in verse 38. You see it there. Therefore, in the, case, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you'll not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. It's an extraordinary passage, that, isn't it? You can't stop Christians. The men are once again free from the council of the Sanhedrin. And here is where the chapter draws to an end. Verse 40. His speech um, persuaded them. That is Gamaliel's speech in verse 40. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. It's pretty brutal, isn't it? Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Now the flogging, just so you get the idea, is probably the traditional 40 minus 1, 39 lashes. They ordered the apostles not to speak of Christ again, but you can imagine by this time the Sanhedrin fully understood the kind of the futility of that request. They're going to speak about Christ. They're going to. The apostles leave, physically weak. Their backs would have been bleeding. Their skin would have been lacerated. But those men, as they left that building, would have been more powerful than the whole of the Sanhedrin put together. In the original, actually in the Greek, it says, they leave with, and it says this, the honour to be dishonoured, the grace to be disgraced. They were rejoicing in their persecution. Now don't hear me wrong here. This is not a kind of masochistic, ooh, let's look for some pain, please. But they rather can walk very tall as they leave the Sanhedrin. 
Because they know that as the blood dripped from their backs, that was a testimony to their obedience to God. And that meant more than anything else. These men were truly men of God and they bore the scars of that obedience. And do you notice how Gamaliel was right? No one can stop the truth about God. It couldn't then and it cannot now. I have a friend in China who does exactly what I do every week. And he has been beaten and he's been imprisoned on a number of occasions. But the church continues to grow. Ironically, in China, there are now more Christians than there are members of the Communist Party. I think Gamaliel was right. Let me finish verse 42. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. I'm not going to stop doing that. But I want you to ask yourselves as you close, what is a Christian? See, the reality is that Christians are those who have been delivered by God an act of grace from God. That grace is that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins in our place. And we obey God. That's what Christians do. In a task to to proclaim that good news. Men will try to silence us, but it won't work. Will it be hard? Absolutely it will be. But will it be worth it? More than your wildest dreams could ever imagine. So what about you? I think you can answer the question now. What is a Christian? I think you know the answer to that. My question is, do you want the reality? Let me pray as we close. Heavenly Father, the story is over 2,000 years old and it still um, reminds us very much of just the dependence that these men had and the conviction that they had. Lord, if we are questioning, help us to just engage in this and ask the question, why? Why did these men do this? They could have walked away. They could have been silent, but they were not. Why are there Christians meeting in this building week on week out uh, to find out more about this man who was put to death over 2,000 years ago? Why? Well, we've seen what Christians are. We've seen what Christians endure. But we've seen the glory of what Christians are to receive in the future and the purpose and the joy and the contentment they know now. So Lord, if there are people here tonight um, who would like to know more, please help them to have inquisitive minds, to ask the questions. Because what you offer is utterly, utterly a new life. And it brings great joy. Amen. We're going to sing our last song.